Hello, welcome to Sequelitis. I'm Manny, and on this episode, my guest is Jonas Barnes. He is a comedian, an entertainer, a writer, and so many different things. I'm going to allow him to go ahead and tell you about himself, because he's going to do it better than I would. But uh, super funny guy, really talented, and if you're not following him, you should be. Jonas, go ahead and tell us all about yourself. Hey, what's up, Manny? Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, happy to be on here. So yeah, a little bit about me. I'm a comic in New York. I've been doing comedy now for a little over 10 years. Uh, so it's been a full decade at this point. Uh, started comedy in Seattle, Washington. Moved over to Portland. Uh, did comedy there for a while. And then I moved to New York. It's about six and a half, almost seven years now. So it's been a little while. And yeah, since then I've performed in New York. I've performed all over the country, but um, I produce shows in New York. I produce shows in LA. I produce shows in Washington State, my hometown, Yakima, Washington. So it's a little town over in Eastern Washington. I produce comedy there. So yeah, that's what I've been doing with comedy. I just, I try to focus a lot on the production of it and obviously performing, but I've been a producer and a booker for shit, like nine years now. So almost the entire time that I've been doing comedy, I've also been doing producing and booking. That's kind of like my direction that I'm going with it. One of the things that I really like and appreciate about you as both a uh, producer and just as a person is that you are very against the practice of exploiting comics. Most people don't even realize this, but there is a ton of... Some people are familiar with the term bringer shows, but there is a lot of stuff that takes people that just want to get out there, want to perform, want to try and learn and grow as comedians. And there are a ton of, for lack of a better term, um, financial and emotional vampires that are preying upon these people and taking advantage of the fact that they don't have big names. They don't have this full, well-rounded understanding of the industry, and they're being taken advantage of by people, and you are someone who is a producer that's staunchly opposed to those exploitative practices, and I gotta say kudos, and I really respect you for taking that stance and for having integrity. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I'm Yeah, I'm vocally against it, and it's weird because comedy is one of those industries where people's worried about their reputation, they're worried about who's going to be able to help them out down the road, and who knows who, and all this other stuff, and it's like, it's not necessarily a popularity contest, but there is a lot of, like, who you know and what they can do to help you in your journey through comedy, and a lot of people don't like to burn bridges and all this other stuff but my thing about it is if a comedy club is exploiting a comic and a performer I don't have to perform for that club so I don't give a shit about calling them out and that's one thing that I've learned over the last decade is that we don't need comedy clubs comedy clubs need us if that makes sense, because we can perform comedy anywhere. Like as comics, we can perform them in a bar. We can do it in a restaurant. We can do it in a backyard. We can do it in a living room and we can do it successfully in those places. We don't have to have a specific comedy club to have our careers, you know, go forward and go up. So it's not like we have to have these clubs that treat us like crap. So calling them out, the more people that call them out, the more people that are vocally against them, the more people that call out these practices, the less and less these practices happen and the better and better the venues are and also the better and better you know just the whole situation is for comics and for audience members because audience members shouldn't have to deal with those people either because those people generally that take advantage of comics are also taking advantage of the audience members 
Yeah, and I completely agree with you. I, for a while, performed stand-up comedy. And once I moved to Los Angeles, that's where I really got my understanding of how the world works and exactly how to avoid having people take advantage of you and exploit you. And what you said about, you know, it's not just exploiting the comics, but it's also exploiting the audiences. That is 100% correct. When you're trying to make a name for yourself as a comedian, at least in the experience I had, there is a lot of you have to rely on your friends, your acquaintances, your coworkers, your own family to try and get people to come out and support you because those are the people who know who you are and want to come and see you perform versus just the wider general audiences who have never heard of you and have no idea whether or not you're going to be funny and entertain them. So you do end up drawing those people into a lot of these spaces where they get preyed upon because someone will take advantage of the fact that they don't understand how things work. They don't understand that even if they are coming into a club or something, they do have rights as a consumer, as a customer, and they can't just be strong-armed into doing something because it's going to make a few more dollars for this person or that person, you know, and fuck whoever they have to step on in order to get there. Yeah, and the other thing about it is that when it comes to stand-up, the thing with, like you mentioned with bringer shows, bringer shows are only a thing in New York and Los Angeles. They're not a thing anywhere else in the country because those are the biggest scenes. Those are the biggest places that people go to because they think that if they go there, they're going to be successful in comedy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's easier to take advantage of comics in that sense. But the whole bringer model is absolute bullshit. It's such a disgusting practice. Um, it takes advantage of naive people that want to do comedy. It takes complete advantage of the performer. It's not... There's nothing good that comes out of it. And the people that also attach themselves to those shows usually have other ways of taking advantage of the comics too. Like, they'll record a set that's like this five-minute garbage set that you're doing for people that you brought to the show, and it's never a good set. Like, it's always a bad set. So they record it, it's like five minutes, and they give you this tape, and they tell you that you can use it to get other bookings and other shows and everything like that, and I'm sorry, you can't. It's it's a dog shit set, so you're not going to be able to use it to get extra shows. Yeah. And they charge the comic $25 for this one camera setup not very good not mic'd into the soundboard tape so they always take advantage of people on other ways and it's just gross and I'm one of the people that will sit there and put that out there and be like yo fuck this club they do this they do this a lot and they do it unapologetically so sure I'm banned from like four different clubs in New York but I don't care because I don't want to perform for those clubs because I don't want to perform for places that do that kind of stuff yeah, absolutely. There's a few places in Los Angeles that it's the same thing to where once I understood exactly what they were doing and how they were exploiting me and my friends and other people that I really looked up to in the scene, I was just like, okay, I don't want anything to do with these clubs. And it's crazy too, because once you take a stance like that, at least in my experience, that's when it seems like they start reaching out to you and being like, hey, you know, can you come in and perform on this night? You know, are you interested in being a part of this show? Can we get you in on this uh, contest? Yeah, absolutely not. And you're just like, no, man, like, I don't want anything to do with you guys. Yeah, that's I know in L.A. Flappers is bad about that. That's universally the one that is just like people are like, nah, we're not going to do that. And also, I mean, they had a problem with that when the John Lovitz Club was there. And it didn't have anything to do with John Lovitz because he just had his name on the club and then he performed there. But the management and stuff like that, they used to do stuff like that, too, because they were in Universal City. So Universal City was very easy to get people in like that by taking advantage of it. That club doesn't exist anymore. I mean, for a reason, yeah. you know, so it's it's the same thing. And now with this whole coronavirus situation with New York, there's going to be a lot of these clubs that aren't going to survive. 
because they aren't making any money right now. And I guarantee you they didn't have any money saved up because they were leeches. Yeah. So they're not going to survive. And more power to them. I hope they go under. I hope the bad ones go under. Yeah, absolutely. I second that because it's an unsustainable model. When the most profitable part of your business is by exploiting and taking advantage of people that don't know that that's what you're doing to them, you're going to end up failing in the long term. You might have a good run, but eventually it's going to catch up with you. Another thing that you do that I really respect is you look out for other comics, especially female comics, because just from the limited exposure that I had, I could see a lot of that going on to where between club managers, other performers, people who had produced shows, you would have a lot of really bad behavior. And one of the things that you do is that you're willing to speak publicly against people that are known to do that in an effort to make sure that other people don't get taken advantage of. I can tell you that's, that is something that is very short supply in the comedy world and the entertainment industry at large, but especially in the comedy world because it is very dominated by a typical individual type. And there's a lot of bros in the scene and they do not want to call out their fellow bros, even though they know what those bros are doing right. is really bad and very harmful to people. Yeah. And you're not one of those people. Right. And comedy, I think universally has been known as a quote unquote boys club for quite a long time. And I mean, there's some truth to that because the amount of performers that are men is greater than the amount of performers that are women. So the scales are going to be off, like no matter what. But the thing that really gets me is most of the time when somebody's being like this shitty person and taking advantage of women and stuff in the scene, it's usually not somebody that matters anyway. I mean, I'm kind of the person that's going to speak out regardless of who that person is, whether they have something to offer or not. But the thing that also pisses me off about it is that 99% of the time, the person that's being a piece of shit also doesn't have anything to offer the person that is aiding them in what they're doing. They usually just book some, like, if they book anything, it's usually some toilet show at a bar that's not going to do anything for anybody's career. So there's no reason to not throw their name out there. And there's no reason to not defend women. There's no reason to not defend somebody who's getting taken advantage of. Even if you were going to it and going to look at it from a, you know, how is this going to hurt my career standpoint, it's not going to hurt your career. The person that's taking advantage of somebody somebody like that, they're not going to last. Even somebody that's at a high level... If they're doing something bad and they get caught and it's well known and it gets out there, it will catch up to them. And regardless of whether they're your friend or whether they're a co-worker or somebody you came up in the scene with or whatever, if they're doing shitty things, it will eventually come back to them. Whether it's tomorrow or whether it's five years from now, yeah. you know, it will eventually come back to them. And by calling them out, that's a way to expedite that process. Of course. And make sure that you help prevent somebody else from getting taken advantage of. So. Yeah, and it also, you know, it helps helps people along the way and it also it helps allow people to have a voice when they feel like their voice has been stepped on which i think is a big thing that has to happen more because there's a lot of people in comedy that do get taken advantage of and they feel like they don't have a voice in the scene or they don't have a voice in the industry because somebody had treated them a certain way or you know maybe they tried to come forward and that got stifled for whatever reason so they feel like they just don't have a voice and i feel like when people come out and kind of bring that out in the open it helps them have a voice and be able to come forward if something happens later on. Yeah, it's important. It gives them a sense that there are people that are listening and that it's not just them up against somebody whom they are powerless. Exactly, yeah. So you started off in Yakima. Was that where you were born and raised? So I was actually born in Portland. Okay. Funny story to that. I was born homeless uh, in Portland, Oregon, and I was homeless for a little while with my mom. Uh, my mom danced as an exotic dancer and also was a pool hustler to keep us afloat. So we had a very interesting life uh, in the very beginning. I got babysat by Courtney Love 
in the dressing room of a strip club at one point. Wow. <laughs> so my mom used to be a roadie prior to getting pregnant with me. So my mom had been a part of the entertainment industry, so to speak, for quite a while before I was even in the picture. So it's, you know, I was kind of like born and bred on like music and entertainment and things like that. But yeah, born in Portland, but then we moved to Yakima because that's where the rest of the family was. So to kind of help our situation, we moved over there. We started living with my grandpa for a little while. Um, then we got our own place and then my mom met my stepdad. And then from that point on, it was us. But Yakima was the place that I was raised for all intents and purposes. Okay. And then what was it that made you want to start performing? Honestly, I'd watched comedy for years. Um, like when most kids were sneaking down and watching, you know, like R-rated movies and like Skinamax porn and shit like that on their cable, I was sneaking downstairs and watching George Carlin and Andrew Dice Clay and Eddie Murphy. And I was watching stand-up when I was really, really young. Probably, I'd say 12, 13 years old, I was already starting to watch stand-up comedy. And obviously a lot of it I didn't understand, but the stuff that I did understand made me laugh. And I also was really drawn to just one person on a stage having control over this entire crowd of people and like making them laugh and giving them enjoyment and happiness and stuff like that. That was a big thing to me. It just stuck with me. And I figured at some point I would probably want to try to do it. And then there was, you know, time went by, time went by, kept on going. And then after I moved to Seattle, I went to an open mic, I watched it, and I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna try to do that. I came back the next week, did the first show, absolutely bombed, just tanked my ass off, which I expected to. But I still got a couple of laughs, and the couple of laughs that I did get made the nerves go away. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna try it again. And then I tried it a second time, got a lot more laughs and a lot less nerves and I was like okay I think I could actually do this and then it just went from there like the first two open mics I tanked but I got some laughs and it just hooked me and I was like all right I think I can actually do this so I just kept going and it's been going strong ever since yeah I've got a little similar story to that myself I was already working as an actor but the thing was for me is I, I really enjoyed doing stuff that made people laugh and for the longest time I didn't feel like I could be funny at all but went, started doing uh, open mics in Dallas. And then from there, like once I moved out to Los Angeles, I was like, okay, now this is one of the bigger environments for doing this. And yeah, I mean, when you get up there and like, you know, what's going to work, you know what the response is going to be. It's, it's an incredibly great feeling. But one of the big things about it is it really does take a very long time to get to the point to where you really understand like, okay, this is my voice. This is the type of humor that I do. You know, this is what I can rely upon to get the crowd to respond. It is slightly different for every single person. But for a lot of people, I think they get this idea that they're going to go up there and if they don't kill it right away, then they can't figure it out. But it is a very, very long process in terms of learning and becoming better. I mean, going back to what, what you were saying before about uh, having clubs tape like a little five minute set for you and how those are always bad. What happens is a lot of people don't realize, like, when you watch a comedy special, there is a lot of work. Like, at least a year, two years, sometimes even longer, that goes into creating that special that you're watching. Yeah. Where comedians go and they, they work a lot of clubs, they do a lot of small sets to work out jokes, and it is not something that they just... They walk out on stage and start doing. And I think that's a problem that a lot of prospective comedians have is they think they're just going to walk out there. They're going to say something funny that makes people laugh at parties or at the office and it's going to make people in the audience laugh. And it is a craft, man. I'll tell you what, I watched a couple of sets from my first year, like pretty recently. And if anybody ever let those videos see the light of day, I would have to kill them. 
There's no way. They, you cannot, there's no way any other human being should see these videos. And I swear to God, if anybody would have taped one of those sets and gave it to me and said, yeah, go ahead and send this out to Booker's, that would have been the biggest career sabotage in my life. They're so bad looking back on them, you know? But here's the other thing about it. With me, from the beginning... I always kind of said, if I'm going to do comedy, I'm going to talk about my real life. And I never looked at it as what's the crowd going to respond to the best as far as my style of comedy goes, which means it was either going to work or it wasn't because I wasn't really willing to go the other route and start doing stuff that was like, oh, my life's not working, so I'm going to do slapstick. Or, you know, I'm going to start doing observational stuff because this isn't working. If it if it wasn't working, it wasn't working. It just wasn't going to be my thing. So all my stuff that I talk about is you can't copy my material because it's literally stories and things that happened in my life. So I'll take those and I'll convert them into stand-up, but it's literally all stuff that's happened, which means that also a lot of my stuff can be really dark. You know, it can be really hard subject matters to make jokes about. Like I talk about suicide. I talk about addiction. I talk about abortion. I talk about sexual assault. I've talked about those things. I've talked about all sorts of stuff. I talk about my weight problems that I've had since I was, you know, literally born. And I talk about bullying and I talk about harder subjects to talk about, but I do my best to make them, you know, as humorous as possible and as accessible as possible to a wide audience. But it does definitely pigeonhole me. Like, I can't do clean shows. I'm not a clean comic in any way, shape, or form. So after 15 minutes, I don't have the ability to do a long, clean set because it's just not my life. I, I haven't lived a life that has begat clean comedy, you know? The reality is that most people haven't lived clean lives. That's one of the problems that I've always had with any clubs that were like, oh, we only do clean comedy. I think the Ice House in Pasadena is one of those clubs. Very successful club. Right. But that's not representative of real life. It's not something that isn't messy and involves swearing and involves adult situations. And if your club is a club that caters to entertaining children... Or if you're doing a corporate show where you've got a bunch of business people that are in together and that's how you want to have the material presented, I can understand that. But if you're a comedy club, like... Yeah, it's a whole different animal. Some of the best comedy comes from just the fact that, hey, we're human beings and we can create these great works of art, but we also piss and shit and we get weird boners or like our nipples get hard at the wrong time. Right. Or if you're a woman, you start bleeding for a few days out of the month, every single month, and the awkward situations that arise out of that. And to try and like censor that stuff down, yeah, you can do it, but it takes away a lot of the punch and a lot of what makes that very visceral and for the, the audience, it's something that's a matter of catharsis. Yeah. When you start eliminating that, you really take the teeth out of the comedy. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, there's definitely a market for those type of comics too, though. Like, if you look at something, for an example, like dry bar comedy, dry bar comedy is a thing that's in Utah, and it's squeaky clean. Like, it's clean clean. And there's a couple of comics on it that I've seen that I know personally, and that is their forte. So, there's two comics that I'll throw out the names of right now. One of them is Kermit Apio, and the other one is Brad Upton. They're both dad comics. I mean, for lack of a better term, they're both parents. They're both married. They're both older guys. And like, that's their bread and butter. And everything they talk about is their life. 
it works and it works very well because their life is very, you know, for lack of a better term, clean. They have the dad humor, they have the parent humor, they have the married humor, they have all those other things, but that literally is their life and it's been their life for years. So they come across very genuine, they come across very funny in that sense, and it works. Like, it works really well for them. And if they went dirty, it would be weird. It would be super weird if they started talking about the stuff that I, that I was talking about. Like, if Kermit came out on stage and started talking about doing cocaine, I would be like, he's lying. Like, yeah. there's no way, you know? And it would be the same thing as if I came out and said, started talking about my child. I don't have a kid, you know? So it wouldn't come across genuine at all. So I definitely think there is a market for it, but sure, you do cut the wings off of it, so to speak, if you're a comedy club that says we can only do PG or PG-13 comedy. It's severely limiting. And it's the other way around, too. If you say, like, I only want dirty comics, then that's also, like, it cuts the wings off of it the other way around. You have to have it open to all different flavors in order for it to work. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Another thing that I really enjoy about what you do is your writing. And, you know, this is going to tie into the subject matter of the podcast. But specifically, you write these extremely funny reviews of movies. Yeah. And I see them mostly on Facebook. Is there another space where you're having these published right now besides Facebook? Yeah, I do it on Facebook and Letterboxd. And I do those as, like, my two main places to do them just to get them out to the most people. But I also do them on various different websites. Like, I'll shop them out to different websites I've done them on Dread Central. I've done them on BrokeAssStewart.com. I've done them all sorts of different places. Um, it just depends on the movie. It depends on the reason that I'm doing the review. A lot of different things. But I usually write them and I'll write more extended reviews to shop out to different websites. And then you'll get Facebook. You'll get like the quick punchy version. And then Letterboxd, you'll get like sort of the more broken down version to where it's still funny and punchy. But it also breaks down like the technical aspects of it or the acting or like breaks it down a little bit more just because that's targeted to, you know, film buffs and stuff like that. But yeah, I love film. I've loved movies for as long as I can remember. And I have known people in film. I've known people behind the scenes in film, behind the camera, all those things. And it's always been something that's been super, super interesting to me. So I decided if I could tie in both the humorous aspect of it and also the film review aspect of it and kind of meld those two things together the best way possible, that's why I started to do that. I feel like it's it's a very generational kind of thing when it comes to film criticism because I can recall the film reviews that I would read when I was growing up and it did help shape what films I was interested in watching and how I felt about a film after watching it. But there is a thing to where the people that are our parents and our grandparents age, they have a much drier way of analyzing and critiquing film. My preference is for specifically what you do, which is you give an honest critique and you make it very clear that these are my personal opinions. Right. But at the same time, like you find a way to make it humorous and fun. What's really interesting is whenever I see you write a review for a film that either I didn't enjoy or just didn't look like it was something that appealed to me. But then I start reading and you find all these little nuggets and you, you manage to expand these nuggets out and make them their own individual focus points within the review. And it's something that I think is really entertaining, not just for me, but for a lot of people. You always seem to get a really good response whenever you post one of these reviews, especially whether it's you're taking a film apart or you're really lifting up a film that you believe other people need to take in and experience. I appreciate that, man. I try to, like, here's the one thing I tried to stay, steer away from because I I strongly disliked it when I would watch movie reviews or see movie reviews. I tried to get away from the whole pompous, smarmy, like, head-up-your-ass viewpoint 
that a lot of movie critics have where they just when they talk about the movie they talk about it with just such an air in their voice of like just so stuck up when they reviewed the movie it was more like this holier than now i'm better than the viewer type of thing and i don't like that at all so whenever i approach a movie review i kind of show my hand in the beginning of it like if it's a movie that i hate I'll straight up say it right in the beginning. Like, just so you guys know, I hated this movie, and we're going to be shitting on this movie. <laughs> like, that's that's what we're doing. And then, Which I really appreciate when you do that. Right. Like, it lets me know what I'm in for. Right. Like, you know, we're going we're gonna to be destroying this movie. And then sometimes it's a movie that I really enjoy, and I'm all about that, and I'll say that in the beginning. Like, just so you guys know, I love this movie, so we're going to talk about a lot of, like, we're going to be praising this movie. And then I go through it like that. Like, there's probably the most popular movie review that I had on Facebook was uh, one that I absolutely destroyed and it was this movie called <laughs> The Snowman I'm dude which is is one of my favorite reviews from you by the way what an absolutely horrible horrible movie when I reviewed that movie I said right in the very very beginning I was like I'm really gonna beat up this movie <laughs> I remember I like every single second of it like every single second of that movie I hated and that's what I let people know the whole time and people loved it. People absolutely loved that review. They loved what I did. So that's where I kind of like started to take things. It's like, if I, okay, if I'm going to shit on a movie, then this is what I'm going to do. Or if I'm going to praise a movie, this is what I'm going to do. And I kind of tried to start angling things that way. And it seems to have worked. It seems to get the, not only get the point across, but it seems to be what people enjoy the most. So that's really what I sort of gear towards no matter how I write it. Yeah. And that's that's another thing, too. You know, again, I don't want to make it seem like I'm just bringing you on here to kiss your butt infinitely. <laughs> but uh, I really like full disclosure. I'm a fan of yours. I, I wish that I had more opportunities to where you and I were in the same general area so I could go and support you and your shows and stuff. But, you know, this is one way in which I can accomplish that. I can direct people to check you out, read your reviews, learn more about you. <laughs> the thing that I wanted to say is that you were one of those people. Not everybody can do this. There are some people out there that are really funny and they're great performing live. You know, they're great when you're talking to them in person if you ask them to translate that into like something that they've written some of that doesn't come through and you're somebody that has really managed to do that so out of my own curiosity whenever you are writing something do you set out with the objective of like i'm going to try and make this really funny as a way to get my humor across or does it just kind of come out naturally to where you're just you're writing your own thoughts as they come to you and then it just happens to embody that comedic voice that you have my natural voice is going to be funny even if i'm praising or i'm shitting on a movie so naturally i'm just going to have that comedic voice so i think that's always going to come across but my main goal is to entertain people regardless of whether it's funny or whether it's informative or or whatever the case may be my main goal in general is to entertain people when i do the reviews so it's entertain and inform it's just that i'll always go for entertaining over anything else so I think that's why it probably tends to come across humorous, even if I'm praising a movie. Okay. How much of your persona as a comic bleeds through as a writer? A hundred percent of it. Okay. Yeah. And that's just, I think it's because naturally, that's one thing. I grew up as a person who was kind of like funny, but I was funny, I think for the wrong reasons, because I grew up being bullied a lot. I grew up being like, you know, I had my core group of friends and everything like that. But aside from that, I had, you know, people were assholes. I grew up as a fat kid. I grew up being made fun of and stuff. So I I think I was funny as a defense mechanism. Um, so it just got ingrained in me as I was young. And then that's kind of how my life took off. And then
then as I got older, I realized that it wasn't just that I was being funny as a defense mechanism. Like, uh, it's like, oh shit, I'm actually, you know, kind of funny to the general public too. So then it just sort of stuck. I have probably the most popular article that I've ever written that has nothing to do with a movie. It has to do with a gay porno movie from Australia that Australia was mad about where 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 two guys banged each other with a didgeridoo <laughs> like you know i'm glad you're you're bringing this up because this was actually something i wanted to ask you about that story can people still find it on on broke ass stewart what's what's the easiest way for somebody to find it if you type in broke ass stewart didgeridoo it's the only thing that will come up like that's brokeassstuart.com didgeridoo it's the first article that comes up it's the main article that comes up yeah it's so funny because when i wrote that article they were like really need something funny this week and i just seen this little blurb about australia being pissed off at these filmmakers for making this movie and i looked it up and it's literally a clip that's like 10 minutes long but i was like dude i could go off on this and i could write a whole article about this because it's ridiculous And I I took everything that I do for comedic writing and just thrust it into that article. Uh, No pun intended on that. But but people really liked it. And it ended up getting picked up and being published by like other websites and stuff. It was, it went like, I wouldn't say it went viral, but it went at least semi-viral. Yeah. And it was hilarious to me because I was like, of all things that I've done comedically and everything, that's the one. Like two dudes banging each other with a didgeridoo, that's the thing that's going to be my legacy. (laughs) Have you, uh, has that emerged again? Like, have you ever watched any other like weird porn scenes and then just did a send up of them? Absolutely. Totally have. That's the first time and only time that I've ever written a full article about it, but I've totally done it otherwise. That's one of the real uh, gifts of being your friend on Facebook is that your posts, they can be about just about anything. One of the things that you do really well is you kind of take these like normal scenes of daily life. It's almost like the way that David Fincher would kind of show the dregs of humanity as something that's just on the periphery of a scene that he's shooting in one of his films. You are somebody who you're constantly experiencing things like that. If you go by these posts that come up on your Facebook, I mean, some of the best stuff is when you encounter just one of those people on the MTA or the best is whenever you're trying to describe a smell that was in the terminal, on the bus, in the subway, at the store that you're at that day. It's incredible because it's a lot of stuff that a regular person would be almost like, this is something that we don't talk about. We pretend we don't see. And you are someone who's very honest and is just like, look, this is a part of life. And one of the ways that we all get through some of the nightmares parts is by saying like, yeah, that's kind of weird and creepy and gross, but also it's fucking funny. I, you know, listen, it's part of life. <laughs> I try not to shy over parts of life, even if they're messed up, you know? And I happen to live in New York, and these things happen in New York a lot, so there's no point in me trying to shy away from them and act like they don't exist. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I talk about them because they happen to me every day. If I go in the morning to my job, and I get on a train, and there's a homeless dude jerking off, and it's scaring German tourists, I'm gonna laugh about it, and I'm gonna write about it. Yeah. Because it makes me laugh. Like, if that's my morning if I see that before I have my breakfast, that's absurd and it's hilarious to me. So yeah, I'm going to talk about those And things. that's the part that I find endearing is that you take something that is horrific for the German tourist and is disgusting just from the standpoint of like someone out in public masturbating and 
instead of taking the extreme reaction of just being like horrified and not commenting on it beyond that, or in just trying to pretend that this doesn't exist, I'm going to acknowledge that it exists, acknowledge that it is horrifying, but the humor in it is the juxtaposition of people that are coming here expecting like Disneyland. And instead, right. they're getting this very harsh dose of reality of like, what is that man? Oh, God, he's jacking off and he's not stopping. Oh, God, now he's making eye contact. And did yeah. someone fart? What the fuck is that smell? Yeah, like, welcome to New York, dude. It's nine in the morning and you've already seen a crusty homeless dick. Like, this is what you signed up for. You just didn't realize it. And that's, that type of stuff's funny. If it makes me. you feel any better, for a period of time that I lived in L.A., I did not have a vehicle. And so I relied on public transportation to get me most places. And it wasn't as common as it seems just based on your experiences that you relate on Facebook. But there was stuff like that out there. And it was just like, dude, you get all these vignettes through film and television of the beauty and prestige and and the sparkle of hollywood and then you mm -hmm. get there and you start walking up the escalator to get from the station up to hollywood and highland and you get to the top and there's a dude standing there just jerking it and 15 feet away there's a couple of cops just hanging out chatting and you're just like what the fuck is this this is life this is where i live now it happens like I was walking around Times Square in New York one time and there was a dude that was passed out on the corner of one of the streets just and there was a cop that was standing above him and like you had to walk over or around this dude to get to where you were going to go and I walked by him and I was like I walked by the cop and I looked at the cop and I said is he dead and the cop goes I don't know maybe Jesus. <laughs> Like, I was like, holy shit. Like, this is, I was like, this happens so commonly that they're like, I don't know, I called an ambulance, but we'll see, you know? And so there is, there's ridiculousness that happens all the time. But the other thing about New York in general, I'm used to it now, obviously, since I've lived here for seven years. But when I went to LA last time, I was walking down Sunset to the show that I produce over there. And... I walk by this homeless dude, and this is my thing. If I walk by somebody that's asking for change or that I think is going to ask for change, if I don't want to have a conversation, then I ghost them. So I'll put my headphones on and I'll act like I didn't hear them because in my head, that's less rude than like having a conversation with them and just being like, I don't have any money. I can't help you, blah, 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 blah. So I just act like I didn't hear him. So I walk by this dude. He says, can I, can I get some change? I act like I don't hear him. And then he says, hey, have a nice day. Enjoy the sunshine. And that threw me off so much because that is not the homeless people I'm yeah. used to. Like, that was entrapment. Like, I wanted to go to an ATM and give him money because he was nice like that. It was just like, I couldn't <laughs> deal with it. Because in New York, like, if I would have done that, they would have followed me for, like, six blocks and, like, tapped me on the shoulder, you know? Like, they're oh, yeah. aggressive. Way, way different. It's a, it's a very, very different animal in other areas when it comes to that type of stuff. But I'm just, I'm so used to it now and, like, decent. And I, I want to make that something that's clear to anybody who's listening that isn't as familiar with you or I. The, the whole point isn't that what's funny about the situation is, oh, it's a homeless person. Hobos are funny. Like, it's not. That's not. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. It's it's horrific, really, it, when you start to think about it. And the humor of the situation just comes in being a person who, you know, so much of the conditioning of what it is to be an American and to be a young American and, you know, to be an upstanding citizen and productive and everything is that, you know, you, you go about your task and you do all these things, but the reality of life is that it's brutal and cruel. And especially in the society in which we live, you know, we're tossing people out on the street left and right. I mean, out in Southern California, it's something that has reached a point to where it's hard to not talk about it on a daily basis. And so right. the humor does not come from laughing at people who are vulnerable and can't do anything to defend themselves. It's more from 
the society that just bunches us all together and then expects us to not notice all the things that have gone wrong. And, right. you know, one of the ways that, that you deal with it, one of the ways that you, you provide yourself some therapy is to point this out and be like, yeah, this is awkward and uncomfortable. And rather than trying to pretend that that doesn't exist, I'm going to acknowledge its existence and I'm going to find the, the light and the humor in that. Right. And I also think that just like the juxtaposition, like of somebody coming to a place like New York or LA and having a certain expectation and then being hit in the face with reality. It would be the same thing as like going to Disneyland and expecting it to be the best place on earth and then realizing that you have to pay fourteen fifty for a corn yeah. dog and you have to wait in line four hours to get on a ride. And that's after you spent $120 on a ticket to the park. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's just like, it's it's the same difference. Yeah, it's going to Disneyland and realizing that the reason why people are so nice to you that work there is because they're going to get beaten if they aren't. Exactly, yeah. There's such a dark underbelly to these things that you expect to be like, you know, the greatest thing in the world. You know, go to New York. It's the world of opportunity. Yeah, it is, but also people die in the streets every single day there. Yeah. You know, so it's like, sure, it's the land of opportunity, but there's a brutal part of it that you don't, you know, that you might not even be aware of or and see. I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that I think about a lot, especially when I started off trying to go from being someone who occasionally went out and did some work to someone who was trying to do it more on a professional basis in terms of being an entertainer. The big thing about it is everybody focuses on the rags or riches story. There's a story yeah. that I used to hear for so long, and that was Jim Carrey was living in his car in Los Angeles, and he wrote himself a check for a million dollars and said, I'm going to make it big one day. I'm going to cash this check. Oh, and yeah. the thing is, is people love to focus on that story because it helps them to ignore the fact that there are 10 million other prospective Jim Carreys that did not fucking make it. And nobody wants to focus on the people that didn't make it because it's not as interesting. There's not right. as much to talk about. But the reality is those people exist. And to someone like me, and, and, and I'm, you know, assuming you as well. It would be entertaining to watch the story of someone who didn't become Jim Carrey and just the struggles and, and tribulations that they go through along the way. A thousand percent. Yeah, I love seeing both sides of the story. That's a big thing to me. I love seeing both sides. I love seeing different aspects of it. All those things. And that's why I tend to make humor out of the darker sides of things, because that's also how I was raised. Yeah. You know, I was raised in chaos. So that's sort of where my brain goes when I write humor. So I talk about the darker stuff. I don't I don't make jokes about the happy, shiny stuff in the world because I've always been kind of the person that does the whole stereotypical cliche of taking tragedy and turning it into yeah. comedy. That's just sort of been my, my thing the whole and that's, time. And that's a really great way to put it because uh, there was a joke that I used to tell in my set and it was basically, I would come up and I'd say, hey, you know, give a round of applause for all the other comedians you've seen come up here. You know, you might watch them and wonder, how is it that they can be funny? Like, how is it that they can tell these jokes and get me laughing and everything? And the secret to it really is to have the most fucked up childhood that you possibly can and just realize that other people had it better than you. And now you're pissed off about it and then just start writing from there. Right. And that's, you know, like I have a joke that I that I do like all I'm totally going to kill the joke by doing it here. But <laughs> I have a joke in my act where I talk about um, the time that I tried to commit suicide. And the joke of it is not that I tried to commit suicide. The joke of it is that I failed that attempt in the most epic way possible. I tried to take a bunch of sleeping pills to go to sleep forever. And the only thing that ended up happening is that I slept for 24 hours and I ended up curing my insomnia. <laughs> so like, it was ridiculous. I went to the doctor and I was like, this is what I did. And the doctor was like, I don't know how you're not dead. 
but also your insomnia is cured. So like, good for you. <laughs> like, so it was just, it was ridiculous. And it's also funny. As soon as I bring up that joke on stage, whenever I say like, I'm going to tell you guys about the time I tried to kill myself. There's always people in the audience that have like this gasp. And it's like, what the fuck do you think the punchline is going to be? Like, obviously it ends happily or you're in a really weird comedy show. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I clearly didn't succeed, you know? Those are the same people that are, you know, on the subway car in New York City expecting this, like, wonderful Home Alone 2 kind of vacation experience, and instead there's there's a guy sitting across from them just looking him straight in the eye as he's furiously masturbating. Exactly. That's what it is. It's all about the juxtaposition. And they're like, they didn't put this on the fucking postcards. Right. Yeah, nobody's... no. You're not looking at a New York City travel bureau video talking about the subways being you know full of people like that like it's just that's not gonna sell you on it (laughs) (laughs) yeah just full of farts and sad masturbation stains absolutely yeah that's that's the real new york subway so if you guys ever want to travel to new york that's that's what you're getting into just so you know (laughs) so going back to what i said before when i was saying that like you're not trying to make plight of of the horrors of being homeless no or even like uh another thing a lot of people tend to overlook which is um mental illness Yeah, mental illness. Yeah. It is a thing that needs to be acknowledged, and one of the ways that makes it comfortable to address is to transform it into something that's humorous. Sure. And that people can start to share and discuss with each other. And this is going to be a real weird transition uh, in a way that it is super, super easy in comedy to just punch down, to find a subject that can't defend themselves. And I think that's one of the big things that we have happening in comedy right now is more and more audiences are starting to pick up on, you know what's not funny is is punching down. Sure. And it's forcing a lot of the lesser comedians to adapt or die. And so people are freaking out over that. I think when it comes to punching down, though, I think people misunderstand what that is. I think people misunderstand that you can't make a joke about something compared to where your joke's perspective is coming from. So you you literally can joke about anything. I will die on that hill for the rest of my life. And I don't disagree with you. Yeah, you can joke about anything, but it's all about the perspective that it comes from. So if you're a person who is making, let's say, a rape joke, if you're making a rape joke and you're not the person that got raped, then you're not making the joke from the right perspective. Because that means that you're making fun of somebody else who had this happen to them you're not talking about your own experience it's the same thing if you talk about mental illness if you're calling somebody retarded or if you're calling somebody lesser than because they have a mental illness or something like that that's punching down that's making fun of somebody that really can't defend themselves whereas if you have a mental illness let's say you have schizophrenia or you have depression or you have you know manic bipolar or you have psychosis or whatever if you have one of those things and you're making that joke about your own experience as a person with that thing then you're not punching down. You're talking about your own experience. You're talking about your own life. You're talking about your own situation with that mental illness. So I think that line gets blurry where people think it's censorship when they're like, no, you fucked up when you joked about that because... Exactly. And most of the time it's because you're not experiencing it, you're just making fun of it. It's it's something that you're insulated from and you're using it as a point of derision versus, you know, making a commentary on something. And for a lot of people, that is uncomfortable because it forces them to acknowledge a thing that they know exists and is a it's indicative of an injustice 
of of something that is uh, a point where we just become callous as a society and uh, you're, you're bringing that to light and that does make some people uncomfortable but I definitely think it is a subject that should not be censored right it should be something that people aren't afraid to talk about because that's how you fix a situation you first have to acknowledge there's a problem and a great way to bring people's attention to the fact that there is a problem is to just bring it up in a comedic fashion that makes people a lot more comfortable listening to it and even discussing it themselves right it's just like the only time I ever talk about racism at all in my act is when I talk about my grandma because my grandma's super racist so I'll talk about it from the outside looking in but I don't talk about it at great length because to be honest with you I'm for all intents and purposes I'm a straight white dude that doesn't really experience racism even though I'm technically half Asian like you'll still look at me and be like yeah he's a white dude yeah because that's the way I look so I don't experience racism people don't do racist shit to me or have a racist you know outlook on me so I don't joke about things from that perspective because that's not a perspective that I have. I do joke about the fact that I can't be around my grandma anymore because she's super racist and I don't have a filter anymore, so I'd probably give her a heart attack. <laughs> but, you know, that's the end of it. And I think a lot of people end up um, having an issue where they do talk about things that they're just, they don't have the life experience to really talk about it. And they end up trying to, and it ends up coming across super shitty because they don't have the life experience. Yeah. A lot of that comes down to how much we, we kind of divide up our society and say like, all right, you guys are of the privileged class, but we're not allowed to say that you're of the privileged class because then that acknowledges that you're you're experiencing these things based on the exploitation of people that have less than you. But one of the big things that we try to do on this podcast is just because we're entertainment, we try not to get too overly political. Sure. But I definitely don't try to uh, shun that, especially if, if there's anything that you feel particularly um, passionate about saying. By all means, go for it. What I do want to uh, talk about, though, is the point that I was I was starting to get into a little bit is that you can make the point that you shouldn't make fun of people that aren't in a position to defend themselves, who you know are having bad experiences that you can't share in, and you think it's funny to make light of those experiences. And it's <laughs> super weird transition. That's okay. But when talking about film criticism, that is one of the things to where you can sit there and say like, okay, there are very obvious reasons why a movie like The Snowman was as bad as it was. You might view it as being unfair to that movie to just absolutely rip on it. But when it comes to uh, films and everything is that there's a lot that goes into making these. And we've seen so many examples of filmmakers with next to nothing to work with turning in really great works. Yeah. So then when you have something to where it's like, look, you have all the resources and tools and talent that you need to make this vision something that at least can be competently entertaining. And you absolutely fucking failed in doing that. Yeah. It's not so much trashing somebody for fucking up performance or just screwing up in their job. And it's more kind of laughing at the fact that there were these groups of people that came together and turned in something where they only put about half their ass into it. Right. And I think also a lot of it is because sometimes you don't know exactly what happened during the making of a movie. Like, it's funny because, you know, using the snowman as an example again, I shit all over the snowman, but apparently there was all sorts of stuff that happened during the writing process, during like the production process. There were just all sorts of issues with it, which sort of led to why it was such a bad movie. But, like, here's another thing about it, though. Sometimes I do have to be careful about how I review a movie, depending on the movie that it is. 
because I have to be careful about the perspective that I come from when I review the movie. So I'll give you an example. One other movie that I straight up did not like at all was Queen and Slim. Okay. So Queen and Slim was a movie that is very much about discrimination, racism, police brutality, class warfare, all this stuff. All the reasons that I disliked the movie were all from technical aspects of it and from like acting aspects of it. But if I had gone into the storyline and gone into what the movie meant and like all these other things, and if I would have started shitting on that stuff, I probably would have got a big blowback because there would probably would have been a big commentary about like, you probably don't know what you're talking about because this doesn't affect you, you know? So it, like, I have to be careful about how I'm watching a movie too. Because sometimes, obviously, I'll watch it just as a straight-up film buff, or, like, as a movie fan. But if I'm watching it with the intention to review it, I do have to be careful, like, what perspective I'm trying to watch it from. On a similar note, uh, there was a movie that we talked about on this podcast, Black Panther. Yeah. And that is a movie that... I hate that it wasn't better than it was, that I didn't like it more than I did, because there's a lot of things that I like about that movie. I like the fact that it makes a mainstream superhero out of a black character, and that it really does try to take on a black perspective, which is something that I feel is super underrepresented in American cinema. Just the things that I didn't like about it were a lot of the really Marvel parts of it. Sure. And, you know, when it comes down to, like, the CGI rhinos sum up so much of what I didn't like about that movie. Right. Because there's there's a lot of it you know Chadwick Boseman is is really great in the movie and there's a lot of uh really good elements to it it just kind of towards the end falls apart and really fails and what's tough about that is there are a lot of people that really love that movie and they love that movie specifically for some of the milestones that it manages to accomplish some of the things that it's putting out on the screen that typically aren't out there in American cinema and I want to love and embrace the movie for those reasons and I do but at the same time like I'm not going to sit here and pretend that there aren't things about it that are problematic or just flat out suck right you know for the sake of well it does some of these things really well and it does some of these things that other movies aren't doing a lot of the times I think also like I can break down certain things like that like I'll give an example of a TV series or you know a show that I watched that's very along the same vein Luke Cage when I watched Luke Cage I didn't like it because it was boring. It had nothing to do with anything else. It was just very slow. It was very boring. It was very anticlimactic. And the character development was dog shit. But there was a lot of things that it did that were actually very good culturally. So when I reviewed that, um, I pointed out the good and the bad. So like when I reviewed that movie, ultimately I did shit on the, um, on the show. But during the process of doing that, I kind of gave, I guess you, I wouldn't say a disclaimer in the beginning, but I gave the pros in the beginning where I was like, listen, I'm going to, you know, I'm kind of going to take down this show. But before I do that, there are some really good things about it. And these are those things. And it was stuff that was all cultural. It was all like, you know, you're showcasing a black cast. You're showcasing an African-American superhero. You're showcasing, you know, this lifestyle in Harlem. You're showcasing these things in a genre of film and TV that is very underrepresented when it comes to that stuff. So all those things being showcased was great. It just happened to have been a misfire of a TV show. And like with Black Panther, I happened to love it, but the things that I didn't like about it, a lot of it was technical stuff. It was just like you were saying, like CGI, certain effects that I thought were very, like, just like bleh yeah. and stuff like that. And a couple of times there was a couple of acting things here and there that were really like hokey, but overall I really liked it. But when I read some reviews of it, I could totally see the other perspective of it, too. Yeah. 
And it did do a lot of stuff culturally that was amazing. Yeah, and I feel like it was an opportunity to, to really do something kind of transcendent for a Marvel movie. And I think ultimately that was my problem with it, is that it, it failed to do that. That it was set up to do something that went beyond just the typical good guy, bad guy fight each other, and good guy emerges victorious. And then, you know, we kind of connect this to the rest of the MCU and I feel like this was a movie that they really wanted to get all of the cultural brownie points for providing that perspective without making the most amount of good with it that they could have 100% it's been so long since we made that review that I don't remember if that's really a point that I bring up but that is something that I do feel like you know is important to really stress is you could have gotten so much more from that movie than than what we got and people should be willing to stand up and say hey I like a lot of the things that you did but I do feel like you could have done better by doing this and in that way like that's something that you know whenever I talk about films that's something that I want to do and I don't always want to just punch down because there's so many films out there that you could easily just rip to shreds I'm in a couple of films that are not that great and (laughs) that you could just spend a length longer than the runtime of the films laughing about them sure but At a certain point, it's like, okay, now you're just being mean. Whereas when you can sit there and say something that is biting, but is also funny and satirical, you know, that kind of causes people to think about something and go like, oh, okay, that's maybe something I didn't notice before. Now I do notice it. Now I can start applying that as a filter to other things that I watch and come away with this new, more educated perspective. Right. And I also enjoy bad movies sometimes. Oh, yeah. So like sometimes I'll literally watch a movie because I know it's going to be terrible and I'll just enjoy it. I'll enjoy it for the fact that it's terrible. But then there's also some movies that you walk into that have all the buzz in the world and you walk into them. They're just not that good of a movie. You know, I had that same thing happen with subject as Mar- of Marvel. Um, I really liked Infinity War, but I didn't like Endgame. Okay. Uh, I had big issues with Endgame. And it wasn't even coming from a Marvel perspective. It was just coming from a movie fan perspective. It was way too long. Like, there was way too much stuff in it that could have been cut out. It could have been shaved down by at least 40 minutes. And it would have been an infinitely better film. And it's just like, it's stuff like that, you know? I think a lot of times with the way that movie reviewers and the way that just media in general, when it comes to film media and film journalism, they build up movies so much sometimes that when you walk into it, you're just expecting this incredible transcendent experience. And you walk into it and it's just like, meh. Like, yeah, it's like it gives you cinematic blue balls when you walk out of the movie. It's just like, ah, now I want to watch a better movie. Well, and on the other side of that, I think that's the reason why people are so fascinated with movies and why it's such a massive industry is because when you do have a transcendent experience with a film, it's something that is very powerful because in a way that, you know, music and static forms of art can't accomplish moving images with sound and the combination of these performances of, of the special effects of everything that goes into making a film when it comes across and it genuinely makes you feel an emotion or it shows you something that you've always been curious about but you've never had an opportunity to experience when it does that that is something that in its own very small way feels life-changing that you go in, in much the way that that the traditional story uh, narrative structure is you go in as one person you 
come out the other end as someone who's changed. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, sometimes in a profound way, sometimes in just a small, satisfying way. And when you don't get that from movies, especially when you're anticipating getting that, that's when it's a, a big letdown. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. Like, I, I love to cry at a movie. Like, I love when a movie can can move me to make me cry. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people, like, I can't believe that movie made me cry. Meh. Like, I, dude, I love it. Like, if I walk out of a movie and I tear it up, I'm like, yo, that movie touched me. Like, that's that's one of my favorite experiences. Or, like, if a movie gives me goosebumps, or, like, gives me chills, or makes me, like, it makes me reminisce about something else that happened in my life. Like, those type of things, those type of experiences I love. Um, same thing with a, with a movie that has just incredible effects. If a movie has incredible special effects, it's just this visually splendor of a film. I dig that. I very much dig that. Before all this coronavirus shit happened, I went to at least three to four movies a week Yeah, in the theaters. And I would almost always see them in a premium format if I could. You know, whether it was Dolby or IMAX or whatever the case may be. Um, I would almost always go for those movies. Yeah. And it was because I want to get the most visually, the most sound, the most feeling that I can get out of a movie when I go to see one. Um, and on the flip side of it, there's been some movies that I've seen where the feeling that I get out of it is a negative feeling. But I also really love the movie for what it brought out like there was a movie that i saw pretty recently called the nightingale okay it's an indie film and it's a brutally difficult movie to watch for like the first 45 minutes and it's just based off subject matter but by the end of the movie i was like literally moved you know and it wasn't that there was a whole lot of positivity that came out of the movie it wasn't a super it was not a positive uplifting film it was a brutally hard subject matter to witness on screen but the way that it was presented it made me walk out of the movie actually feeling something. And, like, I dig that. I really dig that. I love any time a movie can provide with that experience, especially if you have no anticipation of, of what it's about to do. You know, I watched the movie Moonlight, and I only had, like, a, a very base level knowledge of what the premise of the movie was mm -hmm. but what that movie went on to be was something to where i was just like wow this is this is a perspective that i haven't really considered before and it's not something that is so outside of my daily experience or my my previous life experiences that you know i was unable to relate i was totally able to relate to what i was seeing these characters experience and i was like okay that was something to where it just gave me a slice of somebody else's life for about an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. Annihilation. Did you ever see that movie? The uh, Alex Garland? Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw with, that. Uh, dude, you want to talk about a movie giving you goosebumps. The very first time I watched that movie in the theater, the, the scene with the bear. Oh, yeah. God, that was the most uncomfortable I've been without, you know, having to watch gore a gorno uh, torture porn sure you know sure and just sitting there watching that that was like an exhilarating experience like that was the moment for me to where because i've always had trouble understanding why people love horror so much but when i watched that scene and just kind of like the way i felt afterward and even that night when i was in bed and i was like okay i need to get up and go to the bathroom but i'm also kind of like thinking about that fucking that bear and specifically the sounds that it made <laughs> oh god this is this is getting to me oh yeah but it's getting to me in a way that's fun Right. I think it's the same reason that people go on roller coasters that scare the shit out of them. It gives you some sort of an adrenaline that I don't think you realize happens. And when it comes to horror, um, whether it's a thriller or whether it's a, you know, a gory film or whatever the case may be, it gives you that underlying like adrenaline rush. Yeah. Where you maybe you're not technically scared, but you're on edge and it does something to you, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the, the way I like to sum up the roller coaster experience is that when you do get on a roller coaster and there's that anticipation as you're going up that first hill and then the really good ones, the way that they are able to make the most out of that initial drop, it's the sense of, 
oh my God, this feels dangerous and like I'm going to die. But at the same time, I can enjoy this because I know that I'm strapped in and I'm very unlikely to fall out of it. Exactly. And it's yeah. the same way. You're sitting there, you're in, you're in a theater and it allows yourself to be immersed enough in watching someone else's experience without being like, this is my experience that I'm having and it's freaking me the fuck out. Right. I agree 100% on that. So what I'd like to do is go ahead and wrap up this conversation right here. Mm -hmm. Love to have you back whenever you can. We're going to talk about some films and have a lot of fun with them. But please, for our audience, plug some of your stuff. Where can people find some of your work, some of your writing, your performances? Where Where's going to be the, the way that they can get to those? Oh, definitely, man. I'm more than happy to come back. I'm actually looking forward to doing a follow-up on this episode. So for people to check me out, um, you can find me on Instagram at Jonas Barnes Comedy. That's where you're going to see a lot of my uh, photography. Um, so a lot of my photography is on there. So Jonas Barnes Comedy on Instagram, at Jonas Barnes on Twitter. Uh, if you look me up on Facebook, I'm the only Jonas Barnes that has a profile picture of Guy Fieri. So that's how you'll find me there. Uh, that's where you're, that's where you're going to find my movie reviews and more of my long form stuff. Um, and then on Letterboxd, uh, I believe that I'm just Comic JSB, I think. But you can also just look me up by name, just Jonas Barnes. So I've actually been posting a bit more on Letterboxd as well. Yeah, those are the best places to find me. Um, I try to vary up my social media stuff so that you're not getting the same thing from every outlet. So, yeah, photography's on Instagram, long-form stuff's on Facebook, short type of stuff is going to be on Twitter. Yeah, and we didn't even get into the photography. I mean, you've got some really beautiful pictures, like just uh, street scenes from New York City. Whenever you're covering a band performing, I mean, it's, it's great stuff. So definitely... Be sure to check that out. And if you're unfamiliar with Letterboxd, what Letterboxd is, is it's part social media and it's part movie review site. So, again, Jonas Jonas's reviews of movies, some of the funniest, most entertaining reviews I've ever read. Uh, if you are following us on Letterboxd, you can find Jonas. We're following him. So highly encourage everybody to go on there and follow Jonas as well. well I definitely appreciate that, man. Yeah, no problem. Is there a YouTube channel or anything else that you want to plug? I have a YouTube channel, but it hasn't been updated in a long time. So, I mean, I have a couple of clips on there you guys can go on to. You can find me on there. It's just look up Jonas Barnes. I'm one of the only ones that come up. So, yeah, if you want to see some older clips of me, I have some on there. All right, awesome. Well, I really, really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And I look forward to talking to you some more about uh, some movies. I think everybody's going to have a real fun time with that, especially the two of us well, yeah dude i appreciate it and it's um and it's been fun talking to you today and i um i'm definitely looking forward to following up with you uh sooner than later so yeah we should definitely do part two real soon on this because it's been fun we will we will we definitely will <laughs>